Hello, my name is Michael Telford. Good evening. Now, this is an exploration into what's prayer. It's to try to see how philosophy and prayer may actually be related to each other. But essentially, what's the real and true purpose of prayer? find that out, we have to know what it is as well. Philosophy, you know. Philos and sophos. What's philos? Is love. The Greek word philos is love and sophos of wisdom. Exactly, yes. Love of wisdom. And prayer comes from the Latin word precarious, which means to obtain by entreaty. There's an entreaty of the Lord or of God in that. Ultimately, what philosophy brings us to and what prayer brings us to will be the same. But there are distinct, they are distinct paths and there are distinct elements to prayer which would not feature in philosophy. So what we're going to do is have a look at what the wise have said prayer is. They are those who give the clearest description. They've been through it and so we've picked a number. Here they are. Um, there's one called Shankaracharya here. Um, and have you heard of Shankaracharya? Okay. Um, so he doesn't need much introduction, but he has given over 30 years a vast fund of information and knowledge to the school. And the conversations are staggering in their wisdom. And they have been the real fuel for the school to build on over the last 30 years. He has said something about prayer, and of course not just to the school, he's also said it to others, and we have some of those quotes tonight as well. There's Jesus, who has said something, not much, but something about prayer. Mother Teresa, who's also, where she used prayer as the key tool in her life. We have some stories which will relate to um, how to use prayer. And there's Khalil Gibran, the Persian poet. And there's some Indian saints. There's St. Teresa of Avila. And then there's just the relationship between prayer, prayer and meditation and some examples of prayer, um, particularly from philosophers, which is very interesting to, to hear what philosophers have actually said about prayer because sometimes people would think the two paths to be quite separate. Shakespeare, if you remember in Hamlet, he says, my words fly up. Hamlet says, my words fly up. My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. Remember, he's on his knees and he is attempting to pray, but he cannot keep his mind off baser things. And he realizes that the words are there, but the thoughts aren't behind them. So if the thought isn't there behind the prayer, it is useless. I mean, completely useless. So the feeling or the thought must power the words. And I think that's probably, in fact, the most important thing about what might be said here this evening is that unless we have thought behind the prayer or the feeling of prayer and prayerful attitude and total attention and concentration 
on the prayer, then we may as well just go and play golf because it's not doing what it's meant to do. And so we should remember those words. They're wonderfully penned, aren't they? My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. So what did the Shankaracharya say? Well, he said, first of all, all prayer should be with feeling. The value of feeling is just all important because of the pure emotion that uh, it is, is, is carried through prayer to the center of our being and thence outward to the universe. And the heart is the power behind prayer. If the prayer stays in the head or just on the tongue, then it has no power and it goes nowhere. So without feeling, prayer is just like, you know, writing a letter, but leaving it on your desk. You've written a letter, but it's going nowhere. It's very significant, this, because if we realized that, then we wouldn't waste our words. Whenever we intended to pray, we would give it our fullest and total attention. It would also rule out long drawn out prayers because our attention won't stay there for it and it will rule out repetition just for the sake of repetition and so if a prayer is repeated it would need to be repeated with the full attention at each repetition so prayer is not a prayer if it does not arise from the heart of course you're familiar that most of the prayers we do say have words that have been taught to us. I mean, we, we know many prayers by heart. So our job, therefore, is to connect to the words as they're being spoken. And that gives them the feeling, that gives them the emotion. The other way of doing it is uh, that you create your own words. And then, of course, they have the emotional power. But if they're prayers that we have learned, then it would be essential that we really give the attention to try to understand the essence of what is being said. The other thing that the Shankaracharya says is that whatever a prayer says, it's just reminding us of our own powers. It's reminding us of the power in our own heart that's there but forgotten. True prayer simply sheds light on that hidden power. And when we recognize it, it becomes operative. So it must become clear to the one who prays that it is about self-awakening first of all. And so, here we have then Jesus in St. Matthew's Gospel. He said there, and when thou prayest, be not as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, there's a contrast here between the open and showy form of prayer which was allocated to the hypocrites but 
we are advised to go into our closet and shut the door and then pray to the Father which is in secret. Now take the prayers that you may have said in the course of your lives so far and how many of them have been in the closet as it were and how many of them have been in public and what does he mean by in the closet does he mean literally that uh, we go into a room on our own and shut the door or is he talking about the closet of the heart and that we enter there it being the center of our being it's not a busy place it's a quiet place so it is as if we've entered into a room on our own and there pray to the Father who will be found there. But that is what he said and it is seldom quoted. Enter into the closet and when thou hast shut the door pray to thy Father which is in secret and the Father which seeth in secret will reward thee openly. And secondly he said use not vain repetitions as the heathen do they think they shall be heard for their much speaking be not ye therefore like unto them for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him and the very prayer which Jesus gave of course is in danger of being vainly repeated It's never intended that it should be vainly repeated, but it could easily fall into the same category where there is vain repetition and it is just said without much hearing and we say it just for the sake of speaking it. It's interesting to see what Mother Teresa meant by prayer. My secret is very simple. I pray. My secret is very simple, I pray. But that's Mother Teresa's modus operandi. Now, how do you do it all? Where do you get the energy? How do you know God like you do? How have you accumulated around you such an enormous organization of dedicated people? There it is. My secret is very simple, I pray. Through prayer, I become one in love with Christ. I realize that praying to him is loving him. In truth, there is only one true prayer, only one substantial prayer, Christ himself. So, to Mother Teresa, the all-powerful being who has created the universe is Christ. And in becoming one with Christ, that is the prayer. It is the one true prayer. It is, as it were, becoming him. And we get this description from other people as well, this sense of entering into the presence of Christ or the presence of God. And once in it, that is their prayer. 
So there's not a whole lot of activity and a whole lot of words spoken. But once entering into it, and that is the prayer. Then St. John Vianney, the 19th century saint who heard confessions for 19, no, 16 hours every day and was a man of incredible austerity. He said, in mental prayer, shut your eyes, shut your mouth, and open your heart. And uh, Mother Teresa quotes him, and then she says, in vocal prayers, we speak to God. In mental prayer, he speaks to us. It is then that God pours himself into us. So here's a direction of how to pray to enter into the substance of God or Christ. And it is a shutting out of the physical eyes and an opening of the heart. And then it's like God is speaking to us. And that's maybe a form of prayer that hasn't been so much considered by us, where we think it is all to do with us speaking to him. But here it is, him speaking to us, and that is a deeper form of prayer. He speaks to us, it is then that God pours himself into us. Now, there is a, an Indian saint, and his name is Ramakrishna, he's 19th century. And he was also asked how to pray. He said, let us not pray for things of the world, but pray like Saint Narada, who was an Indian saint. And uh, then he quotes what happened between Saint Narada and God. Narada said, grant that I may be favored with love for thee. And God said, be it so, Narada, but will you not ask for anything else? And he said, Lord, may it please thee to grant that I may not be attracted by thy maya, which fascinates the universe. Be it so, Narada, but is there anything else? No, Lord. That is all I pray for. So, the entire need for prayer is covered by these two things in the case of Narada, which is... One, love of God. May we be favored with love for him. And secondly, may we be free from attachment and fear. Attachment and attraction to this multiple universe. Just free in it to move freely and not be captured. So love and freedom from attachment, they're the two. And then with those two, he would feel that he lacked nothing. A lot of us feel that we will only attain a happiness when we have a certain level of comfort or a certain amount of wealth or we're free from all the trappings but here we have a simple direction that 
if there's love and freedom from attachment, then we will have all that is needed. And those two may be granted through prayer. So one of the great obstacles to all this is desire. Desire produces other things in our heart which cause the attachment. And there is a story told about Akbar, um, who is a great Mughal emperor. When he was out hunting once, he spent the night in the jungle, but unable to sleep because the jackals were, were screaming. And they made a, a fierce noise. He called his advisors around and said, what are these jackals? You know, what's the problem with them? And they said, well, they're, they're unhappy. And why they're unhappy? They're so cold. So the emperor said, right, distribute blankets to them. And these are wild animals. Anyway, it distributed blankets to these jackals on the orders of the emperor. And the emperor settled down to, to sleep. But the howling got worse. So he called his advisors and he says, what's the problem? They've been given blankets and they're still howling. And the advisors said, my lord, they are now crying because they are so happy at receiving the blankets. And this story is told to point out that whether we have pleasure or whether we have pain, we still howl. It's still a problem. And we never get over that problem of want. So when we are a child, we want toys. When we're a Adolescent, maybe we want some education. When we've done that, we want employment. When we have employment, we want promotion. When we've promoted satisfactorily, we begin to think about retirement. And we want that to be comfortable. And we make provision for it. And when we get to that stage, we think all our troubles will be over. But I've never seen a retired person for whom the troubles are over. So just troubles continue. We end up, I mean, at that level, it's all just jackal land. We just howl for one reason or another. We howl and we're never addressed. So clearly, the idea is to find this desire-free condition. And for that, prayer can be very helpful. The true self we have a, an ego and we have a true self, the true self does not actually need to pray. It's the lower self which needs to pray. It's the imperfect. And that's actually what does pray. And so it's like the individual self prays in order to remind itself of the great self, the pure self, the universal self. So prayers are not for someone out there to answer, but for someone within to fulfill. One is forgiven only when one has forgiven. Would that remind us of any statement in any of our prayers? Yes, exactly. One is forgiven only when one has forgiven. So that's 
universal statement from totally different traditions. There it is. So prayer is for grace. It creates space for grace to enter. So that's why prayer is done and that's for whom it is. We may ask ourselves, well, in amongst all the types of prayer, how many are there? We will all know of the petitioning type of prayer where something particular is being asked for. And the wise don't give an awful lot of time to that. It's as if it's, like it said earlier on, when uh, the quotation from Jesus, that your Father in heaven already knows what ye have need of. So, move on. He knows. So there's no need to ask in that realm. Or we may have a view of God that Homer Simpson had. I'm sure you wouldn't waste your time watching The Simpsons. But occasionally I do. Anyway, there was this one. Actually, it's funny. It's when this talk was being prepared. And so it coincided very nicely. But it was where he's in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere. And he has Marge and his family, this Bart and Lisa, there. And this hurricane blows up. And it was rather dangerous in a log cabin. And uh, it's terrifying them, absolutely terrifying them. Then uh, suddenly goes quiet, you see. And Homer... Oh, that's great, he says, it's all over, you see. And, and then Lisa says, who knows everything, my dad, it's, it's just the eye of a hurricane. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, and he opens the door and out he goes. A second later, the, you know, the hurricane comes back and he just makes it back and shuts the door and then the whole place is shaking, is about to blow away and Marge sinks to her knees and puts her hands together and says, please, God, I love my family. I'll do anything for you. Please make this to stop. And it stops immediately. It's like that. And Homer can't believe it. He can't believe it. He opens the door and he walks out and little birds chirping on the trees. And he says, my God, he fell for it. <laughs> so, those sort of prayers, they just don't work like that. You know, please don't let Granny die today. And all these. It's a question of what really is prayer to do. We're left in the end with two types. The Shankaracharya gives us two types, and I'll tell you what they are. One is the type which praises and magnifies the glory of God. Where you praise him. Just praise now, why should such a thing, A, be considered a prayer, and why should there be any good to us? If he already knows his qualities. Why would praise of the glorious aspects of the absolute be of any use? Can you tell me? Yes, it would show gratitude. And what does that do? What does gratitude do? Yeah, 
certainly it, it humbles the, certainly humbles the ego, doesn't it? But it's like because it's putting us in a much bigger frame, do you know? And, and gratitude opens the heart. And these are major events I internally. So certainly it does that. Is there anything else that this praise does? I think it does, and I, I think it actually enlightens us too. I mean, if you praise something enough, you, you find you take on the qualities of what you're praising. And the people you admire, you take on their qualities. You don't just admire somebody and then you don't take on their qualities. You admire them and you take on their qualities. And the more you praise them, the more you become like them. So asking, when we ask us to see what we're supposed to see for ourselves, Yes, asking, exactly, yes. Yeah, it would lighten us. It would. But that is presented as the first form of prayer, the praise type. The second type is asking for the, our impediments and our, maybe our shortcomings to be made good or to be removed. So it's looking for the weaknesses in our system to be made good. That type of prayer is valid, but if you want to look at it like this, if we only go for that type of prayer where we're asking for our shortcomings to be made good and forgive us the sins that we have done because we haven't been strong enough to resist them and all that, you're left in the end unfulfilled because you've just asked for all these bad things to be made good. But if you go for praising the glorious aspects of the Absolute, it covers the whole lot. And you are left with the qualities of the Absolute when you've finished in prayer. So it's a more powerful, a more enduring, a truer form of prayer than the one which says, look, I'm a sinner and I acknowledge these following things and I'm truly sorry and I repent of them and please let's move forward from here. That's a lesser form of prayer than the praise type. The Shankaracharya says that Prayers are a complete surrender of oneself. This starts to melt the heart. And unless this melting has taken place, the heart does not really echo the prayers. The analogy that's used is sealing wax. Now you know the way sealing wax takes an imprint. Well, if the sealing wax is heated, it's heated through the prayer, then the sealing wax is able to take an imprint. And the imprint will be of the positive notions, the positive intentions that you then express. But the actual sort of heating of the wax is the prayer. Mental prayers are non-verbal, are very potent, and bring spontaneous expansion within the heart. So this is the other thing that happens when one praises um, the absolute is that there is a natural surrender of my limited world and all the hang-ups I've got and all 
the smaller view of my life that I hold, that goes as we enter the bigger view. And so we come to Jesus and the Lord's Prayer. And he said, after this manner pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven. And uh, then there follow in that prayer some words of praise of the Absolute. And then there are words of petitioning, which begin with, give us this day our daily bread. We notice that in the Lord's Prayer, it is clearly, there is no I or me mentioned in it. It's all us. Everything is us. And we. And our. So there's barely an individual anywhere in it to be found. But, of course, we relate to it in the sense of a larger whole. And then at the end, there are more words of praise of the absolute. A follow-up on that, Jesus said in St. Matthew, if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. This is all proof that it's all happening within us. Now, it's a great prayer, and there was a woman in France called Simone Weil who was a philosopher, um, first and foremost. She died at the age of 35 during the war, in the Second World War. And she taught herself Sanskrit, she taught herself Greek, she was a supreme mathematician. I mean, she was the finest brain in the whole of France by a long way during the 30s. Being a philosopher, she didn't bother with prayer. But two years before she died, she was in correspondence with Father Perrin in the south of France. And I think for his sake, she tried prayer. Having used the Lord's Prayer, she learned it in Greek. And having used it, she used it every day. She entered into the presence of Christ using this prayer. And because, you know, we have somebody of a, with incredible power and devotion actually writing about this, I think it's worth our hearing about it. And here it is. She said, and these are her words, Up until last September, I had not prayed even once in my life at least in the literal sense of the word. I had never addressed words to God aloud or mentally. So there's her beginning. And then she learns the paternoster in Greek. She's so pleased with its sweetness that she starts reciting it almost continuously. She then decides to recite it once a day with absolute attention. And that's the thing. She was very strong on attention, Simon Weil. It was the master key to everything. So here she is with the Lord's Prayer and with total attention she repeated. And if she ever didn't, if her attention wandered at all during it, she would go back to the beginning she'd start again until she said it right through with absolute attention. The virtue of this practice, she says, is extraordinary and surprises me every time I do it. For even though I live it every day, it goes beyond my expectation every time. 
Sometimes the first words tear my thought outside my body and transport it to a place outside space from which there is neither perspective nor point of view. Space opens up. The infinity of ordinary space is replaced by an infinity to a second or third power. At the same time, this infinity of infinities fills itself to the brim with silence. A silence which is not an absence of sound, more positive than that of a sound. Sometimes also during this recreation, or at other moments, Christ is present in person, but with a presence that is infinitely more real, more poignant, more clear, and more full of love than the first time he took me. And the prayer that she said, she said it was in Greek, and someone has considered this to be important enough to put it on the internet. So there it is. You can just download it. It goes like this. And pater chemon ha en tois uranois hagiasse to to onamasu elteto he basileasu gene the to tothele masu hos en uranoi kai epites case tonart don chemon ton epusion dos chemin semeran kai afes chemin to offer lemata chemon kai Chaimes a fiamen tois a fedatais chaimon. Chaimei eisenenkes eis perasmon, ala chrusai chemas apot tu poneru. The words of the pater are perfectly pure. If you recite the pater with no other intention than to pay the fullness of one's attention to the words themselves, you're completely sure to be delivered by this means, from a part, as small as it may be, of the evil you hold inside you. In the same way, if you look at the Holy Sacrament with no other thought than that Christ is there, and so on. That which is perfectly pure can not be anything else but God present down here. And if it was something else than God, it would not be pure. And so that is the use of a prayer which is very familiar to us. The use of the different language is that it takes us out of our normal thought patterns and it puts them in another set of thought patterns. It's quite difficult to break out, particularly if if it's been said without a lot of attention, so long, it can be sometimes useful to use it in a different language and just learn it in that language. But the essential and the important thing is that it is said with total attention. And then the meaning will grow and glow and it will take you in. And then the prayer is a living prayer. The Shankaracharya has said pretty well the same thing. And he has said that there lives alongside 
us, our small self that we call ourself, and a universal self. And that universal self is there for the purpose of guidance. And therefore we get a guiding voice from time to time when we're in difficulties. But in order to hear that inner voice, we should pray to the all-knowing universal self in solitude with a settled mind. And then an answer to bring us face to face with success is sure to come forth. What we have to do is to take guidance from our inner mind, from that immense source of power, the universal self, with fullest concentration of mind and humility. And you'll see again that Shankaracharya stresses with fullest concentration of mind and humility. And so you can see that with Mother Teresa, perfect prayer does not consist in many words, but in the fervor of desire that raises the heart to Jesus. Love to pray. Let's not pray long drawn out prayers, but let's pray short ones, full of love. Let's pray on behalf of those who do not pray. Does your mind and heart go to Jesus as soon as you get up in the morning? This is prayer. That you turn your heart and mind to God. To pray generously is not enough. We must pray devoutly, with fervor and piety. We need prayer so that in every moment we may know how to be completely available to him. Do you know, we could spend the whole evening on any, any, any sentence in any of these. We could really spend a lot of useful time, you know, just asking ourselves, well, what is it to pray devoutly or with fervor? When do we last pray with fervor or with piety? We need prayer so that in every moment we may know how to be completely available to him. So what does that mean, completely available to him? So maybe we should meet for the next 12 weeks up here. It is such a big subject that if we can just kind of distill the essence of what has been said by these great souls and practice that, and we're equal to practice of it. I mean, you're all great souls. You don't fit in this room even. So we can all, we can all match this demand. We're not too weak to match it. We're not saying, you know, Mother Teresa is, oh, well, she's just she's a saint, you know, she's wonderful. No, that's just an excuse not to do what she's advising. We can match that. We can pray devoutly and with fervor and with piety. We can make ourselves completely available to him. And what's the first thought that comes into our mind when we get up in the morning? Sure. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So, is, is it, have you come across meditation yet? You have? Well, in meditation is given with a mantra. The Shankaracharya says, first thing in the morning, that's to say, when you wake up, when you wake up, right, and feet on the ground, 
Repeat the mantra 11 times. Then go and wash your teeth. Well, he didn't say the teeth bit, but he said, said 11 times. So he said about 11. Why? Do you understand? 7, 12, or 30. But anyway. But just do it. I do it. And it's good. I mean, just try these things. Do what these people say. You mightn't hear it again. You know? Might as well do it. That proverbial boss may come, and he may go under it. And by that stage, you'll want to have got something right. So, and then Mother Teresa says, all our words will be useless unless they come from within. If we are careful of silence, it will be easy to pray. Silence of our eyes, silence of our ears, silence of our mouths, silence of our minds. In the silence of the heart, God will speak. So, and this after the fervor, then just let the mind be in the presence of what you've been praying to. And see what happens. Khalil Gibran. What is prayer but the expansion of yourself into the living ether? God listens not to your words, save when he utters them through your lips. And about prayer, our God, who art our winged self, it is thy will in us that willeth. So, I mean, through prayer, there's this sort of total conversion of us into the universal self or into God. It's transformative and it's meant to be transformative. And they all say so. And so any other idea we have about prayer, we might as well change it. This is also interesting. Here's an Indian saint called Swami Krishnananda. And he talks about the intensity of prayer. If a prayer is intense, it will be felt there in any particular part of the universe in a corresponding degree of intensity. Our prayers are capable of producing an effect immediately. The prayers should be absolutely selfless. The idea of personal relationship should be removed or the prayer loses its value. We offer prayers not because we want anything in return for prayers, but because we wish to radiate peace in the universe. So the first point there is that there's this immediate effect wherever we want prayer to have its effect. It will be felt. And of course, it will be felt only if it is felt by us. And hence the heart is the important thing. You may know the tempest, and at the end of the tempest, the, I mean the very, very last, now this is really significant because it's Shakespeare's last play, right? And this is the last thing, the last piece in his last play. This is Shakespeare leaving the stage now. And 
Shakespeare's works are just treasuries of wisdom. Anyway, this epilogue is by Prospero, who was like king of this island. I mean, he was like lord of the island. He was like god of the island. He gave away all his powers. He gave up all his books. He let go all of these subtle forces that he had control of. And he was just left with his self. And then his last appeal, just before he leaves, and where he's leaving life now, Shakespeare is too, as well as Prospero is, he looks to the audience. And the audience, you see, is that which is watching. It's like the absolute. It's watching this play. And he appeals to the absolute. He appeals to the audience, which is God. And he says, release me, he says, from my bands with the help of your good hands. And gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all thoughts. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Bye-bye, Shakespeare. It's extraordinary. And he says, unless I be relieved by prayer, that which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all thoughts. I mean, there is the in intensity again. And it assaults mercy in the sense that it, I mean, it reaches to mercy itself, reaches there. Mercy is effective. Then there's Ramakrishna. And he says, is there really any efficacy in prayers? He was asked. He says, yes, when mind and speech earnestly unite in asking for a thing, that prayer is answered. Of no avail are the prayers of that man who saves with his mouth. These are all thine, O Lord, and thinks at the same time in his heart that all of them are his. Be not traitor to your thoughts, but be sincere. Act according to your thoughts, and you shall surely succeed. Pray with a pure and simple heart, and your prayers will be heard. That which you think you should speak, let there be harmony between your thought and your word. There's another story which was told of the saint and the tamarind tree. And the saint was praying and meditating underneath this tamarind tree, which is a tree that has millions of little leaves, tiny, tiny little leaves, countless numbers. Anyway, this is where he used to go to pray. And as I said, God's messenger, whose name was Narada, he was doing around to see how all God's devotees were getting on with their devotions, and he was reporting back to God to let him know. So... Anyway, he came across this saint uh, underneath the tamarind tree, and he said, who are you? He said, I'm, I'm a devotee of God, and I'm praying. And he said, who are you? He said to Narada. 
And Narada says, well, I'm actually the messenger of God. And they say, well, what do you want? He said, I just want to know how you're getting on. So he said, well, I'm spending my time here meditating. And Narada took a note of this, and he thanked him. He said, but look, just one thing, Narada, before you go, will you ask God something for me? And Narada said, well, all right. And said, well, could you ask him, when will I meet him? And Narada said, well, okay. So off, off he went. And um, anyway, sometime later, Narada came back and the saint said, well, have, have you, have you, have you got, got a message for me? And Narada was looking very shifty. He said, well, look, uh, can we just maybe move on and talk about something else? Said, no, have you got a message for me? I mean, did you ask? Yeah, 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 I did ask. And uh, did he say anything? And yes, yes, he did. But I don't really think you want to hear it. He said, but it's a reply from God to a question I have. I, I must hear it. And he said, well, if you must. He said, what God said was that he will meet you, but only in the same number of years as there are leaves on this tree. And the saint went to ecstasy and started dancing around. And now the tattoo on the shoulder, no, stop, don't think you heard me. He said that it would only be in the same number of years as there are leaves on this tree. Did you hear me? Yeah, I heard you. Fantastic, it danced again. And then he said to him, look, what, 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 what's all this, this for? And he said, well, God has said he is someday going to meet me. That's all I need to know. And at that, God appeared, see? And Narada turned over and said, my Lord, you, you've just, you're turning me into a liar. I've just told him he's going to meet you in millions of years. And, and here you are, down here. God said, these things are for ordinary men. If there is anybody special, then the question of time and space has to be satisfied and the meeting must be instantaneous. This comes up again and again in what the wise say about devotion. When the devotion is absolutely sincere, time doesn't matter and the effect is instant. Now, I think that should be enormously good news to all of you and to me because it shows that prayer has a real use. There were some saints like St. Teresa of Avila who reckoned that she had a mind like a pack of horses, wild ones, and she said that her method was for people who had minds like hers, like wild horses. And she called her prayer method the method of recollection, where the soul collects its faculties together within itself to be with its God. And her method is one of presence, to be present with God. We should see and be present to the one with whom we speak without turning our back on him. And so what goes on, the mind doesn't matter can be wild, 
it can be foolish, but so long as you yourself are present, yourself, which of course is more than the mind, uh, then that is the goal achieved. And she goes on, who art in heaven, where must one seek our sacred father? For wandering minds, it is very important to strive to understand these truths by experience. Greatly slows down the mind. You already know that God is everywhere. Consider what St. Augustine said. He sought him in many places, but found him ultimately within himself. Recollecting is withdrawing the senses within. If the recollection is true, it is felt very clearly. Now you, you can see the influence of the Greek philosophers and St. Augustine who was a Platonist in this. This idea of recollection is very Socratic. But essentially it is coming to find a place within yourself and that is where the prayer happens. Socrates had a prayer. His prayer was O auspicious Pan, and you other deities of this place, grant to me to become beautiful inwardly, that all my outward good may prosper my inner soul. Grant that I may esteem wisdom the only riches, and that I may have only so much gold as self-restraint may handsomely carry. Have you got more gold than self-restraint can handsomely carry? Well, that's a good one. Esteem wisdom the only riches. And just enough gold to get by. And so, finally, this is a prayer which is found in the Vedanta. And it goes as follows. O Lord, my whole being is yourself, and this mind which has been given to me is your consort. The life force, breath and energy which you have given me are your attendants. My body is the temple in which I worship you. Whatever I eat or wear or do is part of the worship which I keep on performing at this temple. Even when this body goes to sleep, I feel I am in union with you. When I walk, I'm going round you. Whatever I speak is all in praise of you. So whatever I do in this world, in any way, is all aimed at you. In fact, there is no duality in this life of unity with yourself. And that's a prayer for you. The I has to, it almost is forced to become one with God to whom this is addressed. And of course, this is the aim of the prayer. It's the aim of all prayer is, is this unity with God. Now, you have sat with incredible patience and diligence and listened to these words. And it would be very helpful to the whole universe, of course, if in after some refreshment you come back and you just let us all know what has struck you or 
what questions have arisen as a result of hearing this, or what alternative position you may hold in relation to prayer. But it would be just good to discuss the content of this for a little while after a cup of tea. So uh, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you very soon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we seem to be regathering. So, I'd love to hear from you. We're just one, that there wouldn't be any need to pray. Did I understand you properly? Or it might be true to say that prayer becomes a different thing. It becomes a process of dwelling there, being there. So, it becomes maybe the, what you could call the finest prayer, which is being in the presence of true self or being in the presence of the Absolute or being in the presence of God. Which is where prayer, all prayers are trying to get us. <laughs> and uh, it just depends on the uh, sincerity and the purity of the prayer as to whether that happens or not. But you, you're quite right that once there, there is no more entreaty, which is, after all, what the word prayer means to obtain by entreaty. So that ceases. But nonetheless, it is the ultimate of prayer. I hope that wasn't so profound or something that nobody's got a, not a single thing to say because these are, after all, all up for grabs. Uh, anything that is said is up for grabs. As a parent, if my children ask me for something, I really wouldn't have to wonder about their intention or the way they ask. I mean, you know, like God said, if you ask for there anything in my name, that will I give. And, you know, I think it's a bit strange that you have to... Do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> you yes. know, that is there a specific way, you, you know, that you have to ask in order to get something? Yes, sincere. I mean, if your child says, Mom, you've got a tenor, you will ask further questions. You won't say, yeah, sure. But if they come up to you and they, with their full heart and mind, they're absolutely set on something that needs this, tenor, you produce it. But it, it does depend on the attitude of the one who asks. Well, I think if it's an illness or something like that, I mean, it's bound to be for somebody's good, I would imagine. So, in the case of your child asking, what do you mean? Well, what I'm saying is if somebody was ill and they prayed sincerely from their heart to be cured, I mean, that's a legitimate prayer. Why would it not be answered then? Because of this really important thing, which is thy will be done. And when God is approached in an attitude of sincerity, then you are asking that his will be done. And you would often hear in prayers, and if it pleases thee, may the following happen. 
but it is in the context of thy will be done. So th that's the kind of the basis. In real prayer, we're just, in a way, trying to understand or come to an understanding of what is the will of the Absolute for, it could be for myself in this creation, what is his will. So there may be an illness, and there may be a prayer, if it is his will, that you might be cured. And in the pure prayer, it will often follow as to why, why you want to be well. In the pure prayer, it will always follow that it will be so that his work can be carried on. That will be the vein of the prayer. And I'm sure many of us have seen and heard prayers of this sort. So the context is all important, and the reason for prayer is all important. And I do think that when you answer a prayer that your child has made, the way in which it is asked and the reason for the asking is also all important. What do you see as the relationship between prayer and meditation? Can I just tell you what... You think this is a planted question because the next slide, in fact, which I didn't put up, but it's really clear here, so I'll just show you it. And this is what Shankaracharya said about it. That meditation is internal. Prayer, at least initially, is external. Prayer is for grace. Meditation seeks no grace. Prayer is mostly from the self to the Lord. In meditation, one moves into the realm of the one self. Prayer seeks unity. Meditation is the unity. Meditation is supreme. So, you could say that prayer brings us to this unity, and once in that unity, that is the meditation. And there's nowhere to go. That is the unity. Um, but prayer brings you there. So, both are both are valid, and it just depends on where one's starting. Ultimately, they're the same, once this unity is, is arrived at. Does that answer your question? Yes, meditation Yes. It's just as a path. The prayer is moving in, is moving from the smaller self to the bigger self and it's looking for unity so it's just the point is once there well that is meditation and that is the true center of prayer yes please at the school of philosophy you teach us to get in touch with senses yes that is the stepping stones to meditation i take it uh, that being in touch with the senses is a stepping stone to meditation that's the question is it yeah yes Keeping in touch with the senses simply stills the wandering mind. That's the fact. So if ever the mind is wandering, and if you just direct the senses to the present moment, to one of the five senses, the mind does calm down. And, and certainly that is external. Now, if we took say, like Simon Weil, the words of the Our Father, and we decided to 
listened with the fullest attention to those words and made it an exercise that when those words were said, there would be 100% attention on them. That's also connecting the mind with the senses, but it's the internal sense, it's sound within. But through that attention, I mean, the, there's penetration, and the penetration is to the same realm of unity. And that's where you arrive, as it were. And that's why she says that she has met Christ. She's been there, but through this process, and a very simple process, but it is of fullest attention on the sense of sound. So I hope that in some way relates the senses to this, this whole process, because it, it is important, and it's not like the senses take you away from this whole process. Giving attention to the senses is, is rather key in fulfilling it. Yes, please. You're saying attention to the sense of sound. Is that not contrary to what you're saying about, like, rattling off prayers isn't the way to go? You know, that, like, kind of really put your heart and soul into it, so that, like, a simple prayer of God, please help me, is yes. better than saying to your father in Greek yes. when you don't understand Greek. You need to understand what's being said. Absolutely. There's no use either. When the attention is right on the sounds of the, the words, the meaning is written. I mean, there's no such thing either of just listening to sounds as like it was in French or Arabic or something, and then suddenly coming to some profound understanding of the prayer. That is not there, because all the references that are given you are to the essential importance of meaning being there. The word must mean what they say. And they'll only mean what they say if you make them mean what they say with your fullest attention. So it's not just mere sound we're listening to. It's the sound with the meaning. And saying it in Greek, it only makes any sense if you fully understand every word of the Greek as you say it. Otherwise, much better to stick to the English, the Irish. Does that make sense? Sorry, with regard to the repetition of prayer, which I understood you to mean that it wasn't necessarily the best root prayer repetition, yet in the prayer of the wise seems to be the advice to say it seven times. So uh, yeah. I wonder what you have to say about that. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, quite. And every single one of them, <laughs> of those seven repetitions, with fullest attention and with full meaning. Because, of course, if, if one of those repetitions in the prayer of the wise isn't with full meaning and attention on the words, then it is vain. Uh, so it is quite an exercise to say it seven times, and it's longer than the Our Father. So, you know, it's even more demanding, if you like. I mean, all this is an effort, really, on the part of, I think, the wise who put this form of kind of conducting ourselves in front of us. It's to, to get us to just soak our mind in, in wisdom. I mean, the seven times is just you 
you soak it for seven times as long as if you just did it once. I mean, it's to soak ourselves. Because we get up, uh, you know, and we go through a day and, you know, we get trained. And then, after all that, we've forgotten what we might have said in the beginning of the day. So it just hammers home the message into what is a very thick mind. Certainly, mine is. <laughs> we must be related, yeah. <laughs> right, well, you, you've got good company. Teresa of Avila sounded a little bit like uh, you and me as well. So, there's hope. There is hope. But there's no excuse for any of us not to take up the advice. And it is a bit of an eye-opener. I mean, you think, really, philosophy and prayer, I mean, come on. You know, these aren't bedfellows. I mean, there's philosophy and there's prayer. And that was obviously Simon Weil decided as well. And she was a mystic. But then she started. I just think her insight is just helpful for us because she took a really fresh look at it. So that's a process, it's a method, and for people like you and me, it seems to be what is needed. Just wondering that, um, as you said about a day when you're drained, I noticed there a while ago that uh, one day I had this particularly hectic day and stressful day. And I was out walking um, in nature, and I found it just lifted. Right, and what was interesting, what has come to tonight is that I was actually ignorant of this lifting in the sense that... Of ignorant of what? Of this lifting. Yes. Like, I actually... It did lift, there was peace, and then the mind rushed on to the next thing. And I'm just thinking that what has become very apparent to me tonight is that if I actually stopped and channeled into that, and actually surrendered to that. Basically, that is the ultimate form of prayer. Because what I'm actually coming with tonight is that I'm actually then at one with the universe. So I just wanted to see what you thought about that. Yeah, well you, that, that is the way to go. What you say is absolutely right. The burden can lift. And when it lifts, if the mind just rests at that moment, it does have this experience of unity with itself and nothing else going on. And when there's nothing else going on inside us, then the universal self is existent. It is there and I am it. And these things that were going on before the lifting were they're just insignificant. And a little later on they may come back, but it just shows how insignificant and inconsequential things the mind does fill itself with. Because your only experience at the end of the day is the connection. There's a one very interesting exercise that you can try at the end of the day when I, now you're sitting on your bed just before you get in as it were and ask this question what in the course of all the day at what moments has the 
mind connected with truth. It's really asking what valuable has been actually touched today. And you find the mind goes back over the day and it would dismiss almost everything you've done except for a few moments which you will remember. And they're those moments when the burden is lifted. Yeah, actually on that point, about six months ago, I remember I was walking and I had this particular day where it was really, really hectic. And I remember at the start walking down this hill, the mind being discursive and being yes. very reasoning rather yeah. than reason. Yeah. And then I remember, it was there all along, but I remember noticing the sun. Yeah. And then I remember noticing how orange the sun was. It was winter. Yeah. And then, like, everything just went. And then problems were gone. They were back mm -hmm. probably half an hour later. But for that particular moment, they were gone. Yeah. And that sun was really important. Yeah. So anyway, this question, if you want to recall at the end of the day, the, the useful moments of it, ask yourself, that question or what have I done today for the advancement of spirit and you'll see that th there have always been a few points and I think it's just very useful to make that connection. You mentioned about entering the substance of Christ, could you just expand that? That was uh, Mother Teresa that spoke about entering the substance of Christ and Simon Weil, actually the two of them, spoke about entering the substance of Christ. I think that is a real question for us. What could that mean? So the only way we're going to find out is by actually doing it. There's no intellectual answer that's going to satisfy such a question. It's going to be, can we do it? I think once you do, you realize you've been there before. Because in these moments, moments of pure freedom and we perceive total freedom, total peace, total quiet, total not wanting anything and yet completely satisfied. And if we ask ourselves what is the substance now I am in? In our tradition we can call it the substance of Christ. We just need to, I think, recall from the past, and it could be as a child, it could be any time during your life, it could be even a moment of shock. But there will be times where we have touched this. If you've come across meditation at all, then that is where meditation leads as well. And then it can become a more familiar place. But the question is, what is the substance that is here now when there is this total freedom and this total happiness? It doesn't happen that often in the normal course of events, but I'm sure we've all known it. Maybe not often enough. Well, yeah. never often enough until it's permanent. Just a follow-up. You questioned like whether asking was real prayer, like... There is a thing in the Bible that say, it says that ask and you shall receive, knock and the door will be opened unto you. I know certainly Francis Hogan, like who's a modern day missionary, ha has said one of the greatest tragedies is that we don't ask for enough. And like, if your back is against the wall, like, and if you were to go down on your knees and totally surrender and say, plead, 
God, like for whatever. Surely, in that situation, we're in deep prayer, like, yes. and we're kind of, you know, we're crying out for God, like, and sometimes maybe God comes in, in that situation. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. When we ask, as in ask and it shall be given unto you, when we ask for this seeming deficiency that we're feeling to be made up, to be made good, that is provided in the moment of asking. Ask and ye shall receive is also in the Lord's Prayer because we have this section which goes, give us this day our daily bread. That's the translation. What it actually says in the Greek is, give us today the necessary bread. That's what it says. It doesn't say daily, it says necessary. Give us today the necessary bread. That's the bread that is needed. That is a significant word. I suppose in a sense it is conveyed by give us this day our daily bread. It's conveyed, but precisely it is that which is necessary to us. And so that is a request. But it's kind of asking for what is what's available, yeah. I mean, it's like going to a baker and asking him for bread. Good idea, you know. But going to a baker and asking for cabbage, bad idea. So we ask for the necessary bread, not for the six numbers. Give me the six numbers, please. <laughs> Just once. <laughs> never ask again. Never need to. What about the bonus numbers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be going a bit far. Come on. So, give us this day the necessary bread. That's ask and it shall be given unto you. Yes, please. And Prayer for me is something wonderful yeah. and something pleasant to do. Yes. What do you think of the idea that within the Catholic Church you can be given penance at confession by praying to say three our fathers, three our Mary, as given as punishment for your wrongdoings? <laughs> so it just doesn't make sense to me. Prayer can only be good. But it has to be performed in the right way, in the way we've described, which is with totality of attention and with totality of intention and with the whole heart and with the word and the thought united. So this involves the whole person giving themselves in a kind of state of surrender to the prayer. Now, if I'm a teacher, when I give punishments, I must be a good boy kind of punishments. You know they don't make any difference <laughs> at all. You can write out, I must be a good boy a hundred thousand times and you're going to be as naughty the next day as you were before you did it. But if that child could write once and mean it, I will be a good boy. That's all you want. Oh yes, please, you, you first, please. In the talk we were told that the heart is the center of all prayer and to find a place where we can communicate with God in a quiet place, 
close all the doors, get into oneself. But a quote came to me there, I think it's Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I think that should cue us in as well as many of the other quotes that we've heard this evening. Would you agree? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, that being still is the closing of the door and the entering of the closet. And I mean, that's one of the greatest phrases in the entire Bible that you've just quoted to us. It points in exactly the same direction as Mother Teresa and others that were quoted to you, Shankaracharya too, that it is in silence that God speaks to you in prayer. So, in fact, the purpose of prayer is to come to that silence and that's a non-verbal prayer. That's, as Teresa of Avila said, that is the presence. That's where you come to. That is the closet, in fact. And it is possible for that to happen, for you to enter into the closet in public, in a church, or in your own sitting room. It is possible for it to happen wherever. And that's where you're ending up. And out of that silence then comes the... Well, the prayer rises, and it does go to where it is intended to go, and it's directed from that silence. The purity of that silence carries it. That's its wings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a red pullover middle of the room. You had one slide there from a Swami as well that referred to uh, selflessness to the exclusion of personal relationships. Yes. I find that kind of difficult to reconcile with an, an earlier question referred to that the family that prays together stays together. I see, yes, very good. Yeah. Quite. It's a good question because it does directly face the question, what have I got to do with this whole process? Because surely I'm a part of it. But let's take an occasion where someone known to you is ill. So you offer a prayer for their well-being in some way. You could offer a prayer for their well-being so that you're not going to lose them. Behind it, the intention is, I am not going to be bereft. That would be an example of where the individual is in place in the prayer. I mean, it, you are actually asking not to lose this wonderful person. The other type of prayer, which I think the Swami was talking about, is where you manage to focus just on them. You offer the prayer for them in the spirit of thy will be done for them. Then that gives all necessary and all possible energy or encouragement or that they will have what they need to take the next step or to get better or whatever. But it won't have me in it. That will be the only danger in prayers, that there can be angles there that we don't see immediately. And so the more selfless the prayer, the better. I think we may see it with the Southeast Asian tragedy where you know, 150,000 lives were lost and many, many more lives completely changed for good. When prayer is offered in that situation, 
is pretty selfless because you're not directly involved. And I think we can get a sense of purity of prayer in that context, really pure prayer. In fact, the way the heart has opened in relation to this tragedy here and in other countries around the world is really impressive. All of that, I would say, is without personal interest. I was at a bed and breakfast in Kinsale a few days ago. I went to pay the bill. The man, he happens to attend the School of Philosophy in Cork. And we were there for three days. So there was a bill. You know, there were seven of us. There's a decent bill. He said, look, could you just give it to UNESCO for this Asian disaster? So um, I did that. But that's a pretty open-hearted response. And it's been like that all over the place, hasn't it? It really has been most impressive the way the heart opens. And particularly impressive because it's not a tragedy that's happened here. I mean, and there's any self-interest, even national interest, but just wishing that humanity is... There's another prayer which I must quote. We say it in school every single day. All be happy, all be without disease, all creatures have well-being, and none be in misery of any sort. And it has that spirit behind it for what has been happening here in the last few days. That all be happy, and we're not we're not actually separate from them. Yes, please. Yeah, I just want to talk about the, the man under the tree. It was a fantastic story. You know, I was so excited about it. It really, really brought me to life here. Uh, I feel it was the, it's true happiness at times. He portrayed in the end. Yeah. I think it was a great act of faith too. Really, like that he didn't mind waiting a million years. No. Was it a million years or a hundred? Well, it, he didn't have to wait any years. No, I know he didn't have to. But it was millions. He was going to millions. He was going to yeah, wait. Millions. Yeah, yeah millions. millions. I, I thought that was a fantastic Isn't story. Isn't it? Well, in the story, you've got this man of incredible confidence. His devotion is total. And, you know, the messenger of the gods can come along, you know, and he'll say, and who are you? You know, oh, look, while you're here, of a message. I mean, he's that confident. Just ask him how long it'll be, okay? Completely unfazed. And then he comes back with, <laughs> no, it's going to be a few million years. You know, I am going to meet the object of my devotions without a doubt. He has said it. I'm going to meet him. Then the connection with the Absolute is, is immediate, and that's the beauty of it. The Shankaracharya has said that the way of devotion is the most efficient route and all the activities of a school of philosophy should take place under the umbrella of devotion. It is the most efficient route. It's just direct. And you don't have to learn a whole lot. You just have to be single-minded and go for it. Now, take a prayer. I mean, if you, even if you take the Lord's Prayer and you give it total attention, it begins to become alive. 
And this is real devotion. John Scotus, listen to John Scotus. He's our 8th century, 9th century philosopher. You know, I mean, total philosopher, par excellence. But it is clear he finds God in the Word. I mean, listen to this. Again, he didn't say it rather like Socrates. He said very few prayers, but here's one, the end of his big book. O Lord Jesus, I ask of you no other reward, no other happiness, no other delight than to understand purely and without any error of false speculation your words which were inspired by your Holy Spirit. This is the sum of bliss for me and the end of perfect contemplation. For even the purest rational soul will find nothing beyond this, since there is nothing beyond this, as you are sought nowhere more suitably than in your words, so you are found nowhere else more clearly than in them. There you live, and there you bring those who seek and love you. There you prepare for your elect spiritual banquets of true knowledge, and passing you minister unto them. And so is just a focus on the and the penetration of the word and there this is where it's all happening and although we know the words sure we know them but penetrate and total intent and they transform and they live and then they become useful and they become useful for everyone you become a net kind of donor to the world rather than a net debtor. Simon Weil also said, I don't know which of these pieces of paper I've got it on, but I won't delay. If I've got it, I'll tell you. I have it. Simon Weil notes that everything we have is a debt. Right? Got a car? House? Everything we have is a debt, and that we owe also gratitude for any good we may have received, as well as reparation for any wrong we think we have suffered. We must renounce the claim of the past on the future. The forgiveness of debts is a spiritual poverty, a nakedness, and a death turning into life. And so, simply strip away everything go for the word, and then you'll be like this man under the tamarind tree who's meditating, you know, and will. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, it could be you. <laughs> well, I, 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 do feel, I do feel very privileged, actually, uh, of the little drops that do come my way, really, like, you know, mm -hmm. and I do cherish them, whatever form they come in, and it, it's a real gift, and and people are just wonderful and creation is lovely you know lots of things are great out there there's a yes. lot of positiveness out there really yes if one is one to see it in that light well that's the thing do you know it has been striking about uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven alright now two examples one is 
that in the tsunami region, there was this complete devastation. And to us, it looks like hell. And to the people there, it feels like hell. However, there are so many examples in what has come out in the last 10 days of an expression of heaven on earth, you know, where thy will is being done. And you can find, I just saw, saw one person t today, I heard one person talking today, who is, you know, a local, he lost all his family, and his first thought was, just get out of here. There's nothing there, standing, there's none like that, just go. Uh, go to somewhere else. But he made, he made a decision to, to help rebuild that community. I mean, isn't that staggering? Isn't that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Isn't that a heavenly choice? So, I mean, out of this horror, you get the most incredible stories. And the opposite was today, I was standing in Arnott's. Now, you'd think that would be a pretty good place to be standing. But the problem was, my wife was looking for a jacket. <laughs> so I got a chance just to stand there. Now, the jackets, the different types and forms and colors and shape of jacket, they stretch to infinity across this floor. Infinity. There were hundreds of jackets, and they all look jacket-ish, and any of them would have been grand for her. <laughs> I asked myself, is this heaven or is it hell? <laughs> right? So I asked myself, and very quickly, a voice said to me, it is hell. <laughs> and I contrasted that then with the, the tsunami region, and uh, you know, where you're getting these examples heaven on earth, and I can't imagine heaven on earth happening in Arnold's you know, second floor ladies' department. I cannot imagine it. But that really felt, I said it to my wife. Uh, she wasn't very pleased with me now. <laughs> I did say it to her. But of course, she kind of, after, after searching for the jacket and walking off without any, I had to drag her back to get her one. Because it felt like that to her too. I mean, so much choice. So much choice. You know, you go downstairs and there are, there are boxes of cutlery, all cut to, you know, sort of 27 euro. I thought it all cost hundreds. But there are 50 different types of cutlery boxes, all shiny. And this is what we've got. I mean, is that hell or is it heaven? That was a rather long answer to your question, but I hope that. Thank you for it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's more than the necessary bread. Give us this day the necessary bread. Yes, any, any more? Just a comment to the lady in the front there about um, what's the phrase again? For the sake of a sorrowful passion. Like, I think it's uh, in fairness. I didn't quite get that. Uh, the lady in the front there yes. mentioned about for the sake of a sorrowful passion. What you, you call maybe a mantra, like what? Yes. I think it's maybe much more than a mantra with, with respect, like that. Say you can have a mantra, like in say TM 
in a kind of an inert thing like that we use maybe to get uh, to meditate on like yes but say the passion of Christ brought salvation to us all surely if we could pray that at a deeper level it would mean something to us I know the there is a lot to be said for praying on your own, but then isn't it also said that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there also. So, mm-hmm. Christ, Christ. And furthermore, in the Our Father, it, there's no me mentioned. Not once. It's all us. It is a prayer for us, isn't it? So it's not a me thing. However, he does advise going to the closet, shutting the door and all that. Now, we can understand that as a move inwards, that that can certainly be understood in that sense completely. However, you mentioned mantra, and I just don't want that to be misunderstood. It just does appear, this is my understanding of meditation, it does appear that there are certain primeval or primordial or basic or fundamental sounds which have been put into the creation, which if we hear and if we spend time with one of those sounds, that they will bring us back, as it were, to a very deep level of understanding. And while a word might sound inert, when you take a word in the way John Scotus means it, it becomes, my God, it becomes lively. And it's the same thing with the mantra. It is anything but inert or lifeless, although it is a word. The beauty of the passion, and I mean beauty of the passion, is that it is a very vivid image. And it will certainly, I mean, penetrating the words that I use there in that prayer will help enormously. And and there's great kind of help just from the story and from the image of it all. Don't think that word or a word or a mantra is in any way inert. In fact, it's rather the opposite. Thank you very much. I'm trying to read you something else here. I just want to read you two more philosophers, can I? And then we'll call it the night. Hermes was an Egyptian philosopher. Hermes Trismegistus. And now there's praise type prayer, and then there's the other prayers where you're petitioning for your weaknesses to be made good. Well, this is total praise. And that was the first prayer that Shankaracharya recommended. That was the number one, praise. So Hermes said, how can you be praised to others or to yourself? And where shall I look to praise you? Above, below, inside or outside? For you, there is no direction, no place, nor any other being. All is within you. All comes from you. You give everything and you take nothing. For you have everything, and there is nothing that you do not have. When shall I sing your praises? For it is not possible to find your hour or your season. For what shall I praise you? For what you have created, or for what you have not created? 
for what you have revealed of what you have kept hidden. And why shall I praise you? Because you are of my own nature, because you have what is your own, because you are other. You are whatever I am. You are whatever I do. You are whatever I speak. You are all things and there is nothing else. Now there is a powerful hymn of praise in total unity with it. And the second, actually, is the longest one, which I'm not going to read. I'm just going to read a very, very little bit at the beginning. But funny enough, this is also a philosopher called Marcelio Ficino, who led the Renaissance of the 15th century, the Florentine Renaissance. And it's called A Theological Prayer to God. And the School of Philosophy in London translated these letters, and they now appear in six books of them now. But this is one of the letters, A Theological Prayer to God. And he said, You will now hear what I often say to God. I make use of this prayer to God each day. In note, a philosopher. So that he may enlighten my mind and strengthen my will. Use it yourself too. And he goes, O boundless light, observing yourself, seeing all things in yourself. O infinite sight, shining from yourself, illuminating all. O spiritual eye, whom alone and by whom alone spiritual eyes see. O immortal life of those that see. O all goodness and all living. You penetrate my innermost being, O deep of the deeps, as you also raise me aloft, O high of the high. What is it that penetrates my inmost being? What is it that lifts the highest in me? Certainly it is the miraculous rays of your amazing goodness and beauty that wonderfully pour through minds and souls and bodies everlastingly. By these you work in me, though I do not know it. By these, I say, soul majesty, you attract me, compel me, consume me utterly. See, already see, I hasten breathless towards you, O matchless beauty. And so he goes on. And he finishes with this sentence. May we, without distraction, infinitely love your infinite beauty. May we without surfeit eternally enjoy your infinite good. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the power of prayer. And I think we all have it, A, within us, and I think we owe it and that we use it in this way. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you.